With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to... Oscar goes to... Gentlemen, my only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. Where shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Could have been a contender. Fasten your... I could have been somebody. They could only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an awful kid. Oh, real Love man. Love is... is... Love. Too weak a word. Stay back. I, 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 I loathe you. I, I, I love you. I love you. I did this in if there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it! Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie! Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. Moonlight! Best Picture! Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia, and joining me today, we have Mr. William Wallace. That's supposed to be bagpipes, in case you're wondering. Hey, everybody. And Mr. Michael Corleone. <laughs> I don't know how I could possibly top that. <laughs> You'll live for a while. As you're leaving, dying. What would you give for just one? Okay, I'm not going to do the freedom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, William, Michael, thank you so much uh, for being with us here today. Um, we have... I don't know what we have to really cover this week. It doesn't really seem like there's much. Uh, there's a little bit of news. I mean, yeah, uh, there's no trailer this week. See, it was all political news this week. No movie news. Yeah, I, I, I will admit, like my Twitter feed was blowing up with something very much not film related, but still cinematic. If It'll make a great drift. film one day. Oh my yeah, god! Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I need to know this right now. Two things. Number one. Who do you get to direct the Donald Trump uh, film, and who do you get to play Donald Trump? Hmm. And don't say Alec Baldwin. <laughs> um, while we're talking about who should play people in this affair, you know, on Monday everybody was talking about who would play Sally Yates, and I think that could be a more interesting question. Um, it's been covered, because Sally Yates will pop up. Mm. So I think for both of those, let's say... Um, I know the internet wants Jodie Foster for Sally Yates. Or oh, man. I was going to say Holly Hunter. Um, as far as Trump, oh, that's a good question. He's just such a unique individual that it's hard to pick any actor that would do it. You know what I mean? Is Brian Cox too old to play him? Brian Cox yes. is yeah, in his 80s, I think. It's such a strange question. Uh, and who would direct the Trump film? Um... Don't say Oliver Stone. I was no. <laughs> just yet another, uh, yet another presidential biopic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Al- although I could very well see him doing that. Now that he's put on a bit of weight, could Russell Crowe do it? Wow, that's a good question. Kind of see it, and he's a very good actor. That would be very interesting. Who's who looks like they've had a lot of Botox done to their face? <laughs> Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole Kidman is Donald Trump. Oh, God. I thought you loved Nicole Kidman. I do, but that doesn't mean I can't make a joke about her. 
what if like and just bear with me here because this is very 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 left field um and this probably doesn't work but if kevin bacon was like 100 pounds heavier uh no he's way too young okay uh, I mean, we saw what Woody Harrelson looks like as LBJ in that. Uh, in that <laughs> yeah. Movie. Is that a Rob Reiner oh, movie? Yeah. Speaking of, by the way, very interesting to note that played at Toronto back in September, and we haven't heard about it. Apparently, in that time, Warner Brothers does not have it anymore, and it's with some small little indie company. Doesn't it have a release date too now? They said sometime in quarter four of this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very telling. No one thought it sucked, just no one thought it was particularly good. But yeah, that thing, I, I honestly forgot it existed until like a week ago. And Rob Reiner has some other thing he's working on about uh, the shock and awe factor of the Iraq war. So I think it's sort of behind oh, that's everyone. Cool. Speaking of uh, the war, uh, not necessarily, uh, I don't want to get like too much into the like the trailer, but uh, that Nef- that Netflix film with Brad Pitt, uh, what the heck is it called again? War, War Machine. Yes, War has Machine. It, some of the worst pre-screening reactions I have ever seen. Um, just honestly, the test screenings and like some of the reviews that came out into Letterbox and just people I talked to who saw it said it is just mind-boggling. But director is it David Dobkin who did it? Uh, no, David, David McCod. Mashad, yeah. But director David Mashad has gotten around this problem by coming out and saying the film is meant to be tonally schizophrenic. I don't know if that's the best thing in the world. That just sounds like an excuse to me. But now they're going to be like, oh, you just didn't get it. If you you point out the fact that it's apparently a bit of a clusterfuck of tone. Um, Yeah, it, it is by all accounts just bizarre to witness... I remember people saying things after seeing it, like, honestly, this might torpedo Mashad's career. I mean, it's weird, too, because, like, this is, you know, this is uh, this is Plan B Entertainment. They haven't picked anything that's not great. So I, I, I don't really know how this happened, but it is supposed to be just god-awful. The trailer made it look really, really funny. Um, I, I can see, though, how it looks awful. And my God, I don't understand how this is from the same guy that gave us Animal Kingdom and the Rover. It just doesn't look like the same, you know, the same filmmaker. Well, apparently, it also gets really dark. It's like both uh, highly comedic and also really dark. And that's the, yeah, it, it, that's kind of the issue here. Okay. I think they're selling us the comedy side, but there's more to it than that. And it feels weird. Sticking with Netflix here for a minute, a lot of news about The Irishman uh, this week. Uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, film, which will reunite him. You know, get ready, people, if you haven't heard this already. Robert De Niro, Harvey Keitel, Joe Pesci, and for the first time ever, Al Pacino. Oh, I'm so hyped. That is going to be amazing. So they got Pesci on board? I know he was kind of hesitant. Every single article that I am reading always mentions Pesci, and every single comment section says, wait a minute, do they really have Pesci? That is going to be so cool. I mean, they've set an August 2019 release date for it. That's so far away. And they do say that it will have a qualifying run in theaters to contend for awards as well. You know, they're using um, a lot of Netflix's money to de-age Robert De Niro 30 years for some of the flashback scenes. And you have to imagine that two years from now with the advancements that we're seeing in the technology like in Civil War, Guardians of the Galaxy, I can't even imagine um, – what it will possibly look like by then. My biggest fear is um, 
that, and I know it's supposed to shoot, I think, this August. Um, obviously, my biggest fear is everybody's age, obviously. You know, not to get too morbid here, but that's my biggest worry and my biggest concern. Scorsese is spry and young, you know, in how he acts. I imagine we've got him for a while longer still. I can tell you this right now. There is a difference between the Martin Scorsese I saw on the award season trail for The Wolf of Wall Street versus the Martin Scorsese I saw after Silence. Mm. That it, it, he, he definitely is – you can tell his skin is more pale. He's got whiter hair. Um, he looks a little bit more gaunt. Um, I, and I don't know if that was because silence was just a really tough shoot, you know what I mean? But, um, it's, you know, it's the, it's the biggest uh, enemy to all of us time, right? You're talking about Netflix. I think we should mention, you know, can with can coming up, um, everything Netflix submitted got knocked out of competition, correct? Oh yeah. Oh man. And you know, I, I have an interesting like take on this in the sense that I get that the, industry is trying to preserve the sacredness of seeing something in the theater and how that is very important but i think one way or another no matter how much uh everybody tries to will it to go that way i think that the consumer is going to will it to all just go to home and that's that's really sad but it's it's really hard because, you know, two things will inevitably happen because I'm going to tie this into another story now. Uh, there have been reports that we're expected to have the worst summer blockbuster in like the last 10 years or so as far as yeah. box office gross is concerned. And with King Arthur Legend of the Sword uh, opening up to an, uh, a flop ultimately this weekend. Yeah, it's going to come in behind the uh, Snatched apparently. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, Mother's, Mother's Day, I mean – that makes but with, sense. With reshoots, that thing costs, I've heard reports as high as 225 million for production. Yeah. Which is, a, and they marketed it a lot. I mean, oh my God. So everybody's talking about how we are going to see always just nothing in the theater but big Hollywood tentpole films um, in the cinema. And indie films are going to move towards the Hulus, the Amazon Prime, the Netflix. And that'll all be for at home. Could we see a scenario where that actually flips? And there's an, an alternative world where the big movie theater chains um, are actually closing down. And the small independent cinemas, uh, uh, cinemas are the ones that are kept alive by that passionate fan base. I think um, that is probably too dramatic of a perspective but I think it is interesting that it seems like, to a teensy tiny extent, audiences are turning against some of the big tentpole films if it's all more the same. That being said, I don't think the production companies will care because this summer is probably going to show more than ever that the U.S. market really doesn't matter that much anymore. I think King Arthur is going to flop here, and I'm predicting right now that it actually does pretty well overseas. Because before overseas markets were a thing, basically, the 2004 King Arthur with Clive Owen did terribly in the U.S., but did extremely well internationally. And I think that's going to happen. I think Pirates is going to break a billion worldwide because of international dollars. So we're looking at it in terms of how things are happening 
this uh, are happening, you know, domestically with poor box office returns for blockbusters. But I think ultimately the studios are just going to care less and less about what happens here and keep churning out the Warcrafts and stuff that are guaranteed hits internationally. So I can't speak to how theater chains will react for them to that. But I think, I mean, look at Warner Brothers. They don't really care if it gets bad reviews, if it does well internationally. You know, I, I, I'm not sure I see that happening. I think I just generally see U.S. movie-going audiences becoming redundant and theaters will still take the big stuff. Um, now, I think, I think the trend of everything going to, to online and streaming as far as indie film goes is going to continue. I think ultimately we might even get to a point uh, I, never mind I'm not going to be dramatic but I think most of our content will be streamed at some point it's it's kind of like the guy in No Country for Old Men I keep hearing it in my head of like you can't stop what's coming um, That that's what I see here of like good content you know in intellectual content really going to television and streaming and just because blockbusters are what sell in China and India etc etc we're going to keep getting those and it might become that is largely what the world of film is but that is, that is all very dramatic i mean i'm sure there will ultimately become a happy medium i just i think this that article is thinking in terms of domestic box office and you know what i want i have found myself with these big uh hollywood epic quote unquote films I have seen myself saying in all of my criticism that these need to be miniseries. Um, these need to have longer forms of storytelling because the alternative to that is a three-hour epic and no one is going to do that and that's really sad. But, you know, something like King Arthur, uh, you know, and I'm just going to keep using this as an example – should be like an eight-episode miniseries. So basically Game of Thrones season one. Yes, yes. You you know, you can totally tell while watching it that that is exactly what Guy Ritchie, uh, you know, kind of wants it to be. There's a lot of interesting characters in the back. Well, not necessarily interesting, but like you have a guy named Kung Fu George who they don't do anything with. You know, there. I feel like this is something that would have benefited from being much longer. There are parts of that universe to explore. But I'm wondering... If what's going to end up happening too, um, I'm going to go dramatic again, is indie cinema going to just become so hard to finance that nobody will be able to release much of anything in the cinema and everybody's just going to move to television? Because we're so, so accepting as a society to watch stuff at home that is smaller in scale but has better character development, better sense of story. But we are not willing to spend $15 for two hours of investment in the movie theater. Well, that's exactly it, because you want to have that level of comfort. And what we're starting to see in some of these theaters, especially along the East Coast, I don't know if it's happening in middle America yet, but a lot of these chains are putting in reclining seats and dining services during the movie to make it feel like you're more at home. So... I think people are just looking for more of that level of comfort, and if they're able to get the more in-depth, uh, you know, more engaging stories at home, something like Big Little Lies or Feud, and if that plays out over a few weeks, yeah, that could be our future. 
But ideally, I would like to see a balance in how it goes. If you're going to have a big little lies and feud on television, in the theater, maybe have something similar, but maybe toned down a little bit. You know what I mean? I do. I think Spielberg and Lucas were right when they predicted that eventually uh, the film world will become where we only have a very small number of films released a year, and it is an event people go out to, almost like the opera. I do think that's what's going to happen, because guys like you and me, Matt, and Mike, I assume, um, you know, like, there is something to be said for seeing a film on a big screen to really appreciate the rich cinematography and the sound quality, but at the end of the day, we are a very small, tiny subset of the film-going population, and convenience will always win out, because most people don't care about the difference. I mean, I, I know a lot of um, film majors and uh, freelancers who like film a lot, who are still willing to watch everything on their laptop. You know, it's... Yeah, I, 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 think, I think we are seeing more and more a very clear trajectory here. And I think what will win out of the blockbusters because they're going to make bank overseas still. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's sad. With that said, did anybody see anything in the theater this week uh, that they want to, uh, you know, talk about at all? I saw King Arthur. Mm, yeah, we reviewed that actually on the uh, show recently and... Uh, yeah. Uh, yay or nay? Um, I'm going to have to give that one a nay. Yeah. I will say I really liked Daniel Pemberton's score. It's, oh, yeah. Best aspect of the movie, hands down. Uh, King Arthur's score is doesn't always work, but it's very unique. Some of the most unique I've heard in a while and often is really, really cool. Uh, they incorporate heavy breathing as almost an instrument, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I would say it almost beatboxes, but then they also have bagpipes and strings. Um, I want to give it props, too. You know, you're talking about the tech departments. There's some things in there that don't work, like they keep missing focus on dolly out shots, which seems like something a big budget film would not have problems pulling focus. But, um,. I think it's kind of cool they tried to make King Arthur, you know, medieval England look Roman because it was a Roman territory, although I don't think they would have had an honest-to-God Colosseum in the middle of London. And um, the, the best we don't talk about the costumes, actually. But I will, I, I will give major props to uh, the production designers for take, doing a different take on medieval England, too. And... You know, you're talking. You, know, you keep coming back to the film. I think there is an interesting film in there somewhere. I, I just think Guy Ritchie needs to stick to small scale uh, crime dramas and you know really showcase those uh, Scorsese like influences and not try to fit that into a genre where it just simply tonally does not work. I actually enjoyed his first Sherlock Holmes film. It wasn't great, but it, it was. It, it had something of a personality. And it felt, you know, it, it, by the second one, it had gotten kind of tired and bloated and just typical blockbuster fare. I felt like the first one had something of a personality. Doesn't always work with blockbusters, but I, I agree with you. I, I would like to see him return to his snatched and lock, stock, and two smoke and barrel days. Because, I mean, it, it seems like Ben Wheatley's trying to fill those shoes, and I think Guy Ritchie's just better at it. M Mike, did you see anything this week? Yes, I saw two movies. Uh, one of them was not King Arthur, <laughs> and... Uh... Well, apparently no one's really seen King Arthur aside from uh, you two, but uh, 
What I did see was Norman, the moderate rise and tragic fall of a New York fixer. Yeah. So Norman, the moderate rise and tragic fall of a New York fixer, quite the title, is an Israeli film set in the U.S. starring Richard Gere. And uh, I heard very good things out of Telluride. And let me tell you, Richard Gere is terrific here. It's a crime that he's never been Oscar nominated. And he's doing some of his very best work here. Doesn't top Chicago, but this is still very good. Yeah. That is crazy. He's never been Oscar nominated. Yeah, in all those years, not a single nomination, which just blows my mind. He's excellent. The movie itself is a little all over the place, a little dull, and wasn't my favorite type of thing, even though I liked what it was about. Yeah. It's sort of a political story about Israeli politics and a fixer who comes in and causes a little bit of trouble. I'm actually going to throw one at you and say that I think it's more of a character study more so than anything now. Well, it is. Yeah, it's about this guy, Norman. Obviously, his name is in the title. But uh, I don't know, just something about it didn't it didn't always click. And maybe it's the fact that I heard about this Trump, James Comey news right as I was walking in and I couldn't watch a political movie while having this news on my mind. But it was fine. I'd give it a B just for Richard Gere's performance. He is outstanding. But, oh, you saw it, Matt. Yeah, I did. And uh, I would actually um, argue that Richard Gere, in my opinion, does not give the best uh, performance in the film. Um, in my opinion, the best performance in the film is actually given by um, his co-star, uh, Lior, yeah, Lior Ash- uh, Ashkenazi, I think his name is. Uh, he plays uh, Eshel, who is an Israeli uh, politician who becomes the prime minister. And he really is the heart of the film and has some really, really, really moving uh, scenes where his friendship with Norman, even though it's kind of based on a lie, he really, really buys into it and really does feel for this man when everybody else around him is telling him this man is insignificant and he will do nothing for you. Um, But a small act of kindness in the beginning of the film just goes such a long way, even though, like I said, that act of kindness, Norman is trying to kind of like buy his way into a connection with this man. And what you come to realize, you know, the more you discover about this character, Norman, who's really shrouded in mystery throughout, he lives a very, very lonely existence. And you think that all these connections he's trying to make with people are for some like financial benefit or something. But I think that deep down, it was really just for him to connect with people. Um, it, I, I, I was very, 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 very impressed by the layers that the screenplay had to offer. Um, the film itself, uh, like the directorial choices, uh, there is an endless montage at one point of just fading talking heads that seems to go on for like four minutes. Yeah, sometimes you see people in the movie, uh, big name actors, and I don't even realize that it's them because it just pops up, then they go away. Yeah, there's a lot of people in this movie. Hank Azaria, Steve Buscemi, Charlotte Gainsbourg, and Dan, Al- Stevens. Dan Stevens. Yeah, Michael Sheen. Uh, there's a lot of people in this, but... The focus is always on gear or uh, Lior, and um, at the end of the day, I, I just found it to be a very a very nice character piece that something I probably will not revisit ever again, but it was not the worst time I had at the film uh, cinema this year, I would say. 
Absolutely. Then the other thing I saw really quickly was Snatched, which stars Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn. Oh, I'm seeing that tomorrow. And <laughs> it is just a very light, very funny, and enjoyable time at the movies. Don't read anything into it. Oh, you it. liked it? You'll have a blast. And it is so great to see Goldie Hawn back on screen. Yeah, I, I'm taking my mother to see it. Uh, quite honestly, if oh. she ends up liking it, it'll be worth it for me. I could care less if I like the movie or not, honestly. But we'll see. I'm- you'll laugh. You'll have a good time. It's under 90 minutes. It's everything this is <laughs> there is something to be said for still being under 90 minutes in a in an era where everything is two and a half hours yeah no you you instantly get i think b- above a one uh from me if your film is below 90 minutes uh you you red can, eye Re- west craven's red eye is like 84 minutes uh, you know like i that that is very much an underrated characteristic of films these days yeah and the beguiled which we have coming up is only 90 minutes so, is it really? Yeah. That seemed like that would be a long one. No, that movie's probably going to move with a furious pace, I'm sure. Um, I saw The Lovers with Tracy Letts and Deborah Winger. How was that? I'm looking forward to it, and you were not a fan, I heard. I, I, I am in the minority. I, I recognize that I am in the mini- minority. Um, I did not love it. I didn't hate it. Uh, but I did not love it. And part of the reason for that is because <sighs> I felt the story itself, you know, two, uh, uh, there's there's two people in a relationship, a marriage, and they're both cheating on each other with different people. And those people are trying to convince them to leave, um, you know, the other. And it's the, the film doesn't cover any new ground. It doesn't prevent uh, presented story in a unique way that is unlike anything that we've seen before. The film shifts focus in the third act towards their son and how he's caught in the middle of these two affairs. And I actually found that to be the most interesting aspect of the movie itself. And Tracy Letts and Deborah Winger, you know, throughout the movie, you're expecting them to be the highlights of the film as far as their performances are concerned. But their son, um, whose name is, is escaping me right now, he gives the best performance in the movie as far as I'm concerned. And I actually really liked him. But then there is um, the final couple moments of this movie before the credits roll. And it just derailed everything for me. Everything. Uh, brought down the grade of this film at least two points. I, I, I thought that the film was ending on a note that was um, impactful. I thought that it had a lot of emotional catharsis, and I just wish there was a more satisfying ending. Uh, people have told me that the ending is satisfying, and I, you know, I'm maybe. I maybe have a different outlook and a little bit more of a pessimistic view and I wanted something a bit more darker, but I, you know, uh, yeah, no, nah, I gave it a four out of 10. So, well, I love some Deborah Winger and I put this in the category of character studies about people over 50, which, uh, nah, it's me. not a, ca- it's not a character study. It's, it's, it's more cliche than anything, <laughs> honestly. So it doesn't fall into that, I'll see you in my dreams, or as complicated type of category? It, no, it doesn't fall into that at all. It's not really a comedy at all. It's it's definitely a drama. So any any aspects that like people would like compare this to something like a, like an It's Complicated or something like that, it's, you know, that's not there. This is definitely like a serious movie, but the problem is that it has nothing interesting to say. 
Um, mm. um, uh, you know, all the things that it does say in this movie, you have seen in those other films that you have said before, and it just kind of comes off as like um, a repeat. And I just don't know. I, I don't know what I was supposed to take away from it. So, hey guys, big news! I just saw. Um, Weird how Yankovic is composing the theme song for the Captain Underpants movie. <laughs> now I think right there. I cannot fathom that happening. That would be hilarious if it did, though. I doubt that is going to be. I have to say, fifth grade me would have pushed for that to be Oscar nominated. <laughs> though I, that that would have sounded great for me. <laughs> Hey guys, this is JD from the Incession Film Podcast. Every week on our show, you can join my co-host Brendan and I as we review the latest films that's out in theaters. It also inspires us to discuss a top three list of some sort, and we have a lot of other fun movie discussions as well. It's always a blast. And we also have a show on Fridays called our Extra Film Podcast. This is a show that gives us the space to talk about the latest indies and art films and other classics that we normally just don't get to talk about on our main show. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and more. In fact, you can just see everything about us, including our social medias at IncessionFilm.com. So join us every week. We'd absolutely love to have you. Um, do we have any... Uh, do we have any- viewer questions this week matt or should we go into news so actually we do have um some viewer questions or i believe actually i'm gonna i'm gonna just change that around a little bit we have one viewer question and the question is a simple one it comes from matt st Clair at film guy 619 and the question is which of the superhero chris chris's this is chris evans chris hemsworth Chris Pine or Chris Pratt, do you think will be the first one to get an Oscar nomination? I'm going to say out the gate, I find all four Chris's charming. I don't see Chris Pratt ever landing an Oscar nomination. He's very charming. I'm not sure he could carry the dramatic beats that would probably take for him to land an Oscar nomination in a more serious film. Even though he's been in two Best Picture nominees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm also not, I haven't necessarily seen Chris Hemsworth give me anything that suggests he might be in anything quite serious. He might give us a serious enough performance. Again, I like all these guys. I think it comes down to Pine and Evans as the two who could probably nail the dramatic beats required. I pick Evans. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think I think Evans is of the two the one who's impressed me more. I think Pine has been also, you know, with uh, Hell or High Water and such. He's been picking some interesting projects. He's, a- I mean, I think he's actually really good in the Star Trek films too. I think Into Darkness is not a great film, but I think he really acts well in that. We're forgetting his best, uh, The Prince and in Into the Woods. I I never saw Into the Woods. Oh my goodness! I thought you were gonna say Smoke and Aces or something. He's he's charming as hell in that, but I still believe that. Um, I I I believe that that is more akin to his like personality and like what he ultimately loves. I found though that was something like Hell or High Water that was out of his comfort zone, and he was definitely um, trying to do something more different and challenge himself. I I feel that with these. 
uh, comedic light roles like a Star Trek um, Into the Woods or even maybe what we're going to see a little bit of in uh, Wonder Woman. Um, I think he feels more at home in those roles, if that makes sense. I think Evans, once his Marvel contract expires, you know, he, he briefly tried to branch out directing and it didn't go well. But I think once he finally drops the Captain America mantle, which I assume he will before long, um, you know, he, his contract only goes through a couple movies and they've been laying the groundwork to have Bucky Barnes take over that character anyway. Um, I think he could go on to do some really interesting stuff. And he's, I mean, he's always very good. You know, he was in Snowpiercer. He did an extremely good job as a kind of morally ambiguous character. What was that one where he had the supporting role with Michael Shannon, uh, where he was the hitman, and uh, he had, like, very, very long hair in this movie? Um, the Iceman, that's what it was called. Uh, he was a really, really good uh, character. I thought he had a really good supporting role in that film. Goes to show you, too, like, that he can do something different, you know? I actually think down the line both he and Pine will snag an Oscar nomination. I think Pine will pick the right project one of these days. Hell, honestly, if it turns out well, it could be the Robert the Bruce coming from his, um, the director of Hell or High Water. Oh, uh, not David McKenzie. Yeah. Oh, David McKenzie. Uh, yeah, well, I, can we get another William Wallace uh, quote from you since you mentioned Robert the Bruce? I might as well go for it with a big one. They might take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Yeah. <laughs> we, oh, yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> mm, you know, that movie's so historically inaccurate, but I it works for me. Oh, <laughs> God, yeah. The moment when uh, Robert the Bruce betrays him and mm. he does not utter a line of dialogue. I, I saw this. Somebody brought this to my attention on Reddit recently and the whole scene just plays out with him just looking at him with like the most heartbroken face you could possibly imagine. Um, that scene always hits me so, so hard uh, and to the point where I love that he just has a moment where he like lays down in the grass and like lets out like a sigh. Like, like, oh, God, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> now, obviously funny because Robert the Bruce never did that. I was reading about the film recently. You know Randall Wallace? He heard about the story of William Wallace while he was on vacation from just like a tour guide version. And he wrote the script before he started doing research on what actually happened because it didn't. he didn't want to influence the emotional story he had in his mind. So that's why you have things like the Battle of Sterling Bridge not featuring a bridge and like um, some very different bits of uh, characterization, like Princess Isabel not being seven in real life or not, you know, not being seven years old in the film. Uh, I, it explains a lot about the film. I will say that. Michael, a uh, question for you. Do you like hate Braveheart the same way some other people do, do or do you like it? Look, I admire the craft of it, but I'm not a fan of medieval historical stories like that at all so to me braveheart is just a giant snooze mm -hmm. i think babe was robbed of best picture that year babe is a really 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 underrated film it is if, but i mean that year i mean other things that aren't babe you have apollo 13 and sense and sensibility which are both great um toy story should have been nominated uh, yeah and toy story should have been nominated but if we're being honest I was the best thing to come out in 1995. <laughs> hey. So this is an interesting one. A lot of people think if nominations had come out about a month later, The Usual Suspects, because it won original screenplay and supporting actor. It's 
Only to not, a lot of people think it, it, it was picking up momentum at the right time. It was one of those. A lot of people think it would have been Best Picture nominated. Do you guys think that could have happened? No. No? Not everyone was kind to it. I know uh, Kevin Spacey won, which is pretty big, of course. And it won screenplay. But people like Roger Ebert hated The Usual Suspects, and I know a lot of other critics weren't totally on board. You know what's really fascinating to me, though? This is all the same year also of Seven. Oh, my God. Seven's a weird one. It hit, like, most of the guilds and then just got an editing nomination. Should have gotten a screenplay nomination, though, as far as I'm concerned. And it's honestly like it is astonishing. It's one of the best shot films of the 1990s. Its cinematography is stunning. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, David Fincher is a master when it comes to composing a shot. That's for sure. Um, I want to just move over into at this point before we get to um, news of the week to end things off here. I want to look forward to um, what is happening this weekend with the release of Alien Covenant. Uh, oh, I thought you meant Can. No, no, no. It's a sequel to uh, Prometheus and is directed by Ridley Scott. And the theme of the week here is going to be a simple one. Alien or Aliens? Um, I, I A lot of people are going to rip me apart for this. Aliens, maybe it's because I saw it as a kid and it just was so awesome to me. I adore... Aliens. I think Alien is a mastercraft and a masterclass in suspense. But Aliens, if we're talking, is one of the best summer blockbusters ever made. Um, it is Sigourney Weaver really brings it to the point that you know she's like one of the only action movie leads ever to be nominated for an Oscar. The score, I think, it's Jerry Goldsmith's score is fantastic. Um, it is so tense. The action sequences are great. You enjoy the supporting characters. And it's a nice commentary on Vietnam. And, like, both films are influential in their own ways. But, I mean, obviously, you don't have Halo or the armor and Starship Troopers or any of those things without all the designs. And here, when you have an extra layer of kind of the, um, the relationship between Ripley and Newt mm-hmm. that's so touching and the payoff is so good, uh, you obviously have the commentary of um, similar to Silence of the Lambs a few years later of a woman trying to receive her justified respect in a field dominated entirely by men, and obviously she shows them up all the end. Um, I'm probably the only one who will say it, because Alien is also so influential. Um, Yeah, I I gotta go with Aliens. Aliens is so awesome. So I have to go with Alien, um, and the reason for that is because to me... Um, I will always choose suspense, dread, um, and also to the craft elements over the bombastic cool factor, uh, that aliens gives off. I find that aliens was actually something that was both good and bad for the series. Good in the sense that it was a departure and it didn't repeat what Alien had done, which is something that I feel like all filmmakers are now trying to do ever since then, including Ridley Scott. Um, But nobody has done Aliens as well as James James Cameron did. Um, You know, to put this in another perspective, uh, if you compare it to someone like Christopher Nolan, right? Which kind of a film are you more likely to prefer over the other? Are you more likely to prefer his um, expertly crafted, suspenseful uh, thriller 
films, or are you more likely to go with the bombastic uh, action film of so like maybe comparing something like a me- Memento versus uh, The Dark Knight Rises? I mean, obviously, I'm going to go with Memento there. I mean, it's objectively a better film. But, but you, do you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, I, I, I get that. I think I'm probably also being influenced by childhood nostalgia. I saw Aliens before Alien. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I, I mean, there's... listen, there's nothing cooler than uh, Ripley moving forward in the, uh, the, the, the freaking... What the hell is that mechanical thing she's in at the end? I, I don't know. And it's, yeah, the loader. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and just get away from her, you bitch <laughs> oh i think it's i think i give it so much credit because it's so uncommon to see blockbusters that have that kind of meat to them anymore as far as characters and subtext go and i th- yeah and I, I think that cameron's you know he had that streak with that and terminator 2 where he really went above and beyond with blockbusters and giving them that something extra that we don't see anymore they weren't just fun they had something to say but i completely understand what you're saying with uh, with Alien for its sheer terror and suspense. And I mean, let, let's not forget, like, every basically, like, creature hunting people in a claustrophobic location movie for the last, like, 40 years has been trying to be Alien since then. I mean, there is really something to be said for being that kind of a trendsetter. Uh, and Michael, before we get to you, um, I've got just two more points here in regards to that. Um, I do prefer... Sigourney Weaver in Aliens to Alien, as far as performance goes. Nominated for Best Actress, by the way, which is unheard of. Um, and I don't think was ever done again until Sandra Bullock uh, got the nomination for Gravity for a sci-fi film. Um, and then the other point, too, I want to throw out there as well, would revolve around this idea, and I kind of hate this, but... I just feel like Ridley Scott is whoring himself the same way George Lucas and Steven Spielberg did with like the Indiana Jones series um, by constantly trying to revisit the series later on in life. Um, This is a film from 1979 and we're getting this Prometheus film. We got this Prometheus film. We're getting Alien Covenant. Now he's talking about developing more films. And I understand he's really, really into the world. But what I would personally like to see is I'd really like to see that get more um, transferred over to the screen because I feel like you don't really get a sense of how much Ridley loves this world and all the detail and um, uh, that was what I'm looking for here, like the backstory behind everything. Unless if you watch like the special features on the on the damn uh, Blu-ray set, because otherwise, when you just watch the film on the surface level, it kind of comes like, and I'm referring obviously to Prometheus here. I haven't seen Alien Covenant. It just kind of comes off as fan service, although we kind of also didn't really know what the fans wanted. It just seemed like a film that was at odds with itself. Um, and now that he's going back to it again, I fear that this is like revisiting nostalgia um not from a sense of curiosity and from the heart but more from a financial standpoint which worries me somewhat i think he tried to do something different with prometheus it didn't necessarily work all the time but he was trying to do a very different sort of sci-fi film and i think on you know in those interviews he said well we learned from you know prometheus the fans didn't want that they want more aliens I fear no, maybe it's, I know I think I think he took the wrong criticisms. People didn't mind not having a bunch of the traditional aliens. We just wanted more answers and 
characters who didn't behave like morons. But instead, I think what they've taken here is, okay, we're not going to try that direction. We're just going to go for more of a straightforward alien film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the problem. I think he got the wrong feedback. I also did not want to see Guy Pierce playing somebody that was triple his age get a man that is that actual age because uh, that makeup is just horrendous. Yeah, apparently they were gonna have him as a young man playing a lot of roles and then it got scrapped in reshoots but and that's why they kept him but yeah yeah i it's a shame but i'm i'm still excited for alien covenant you know i think it'll it sounds if it's not great it's at least good okay michael all right you've been quiet what do you got yeah well you know what i let the two of you do all the heavy lifting here because this is probably more up your alley than mine uh, look, the first two Alien movies are fine. I like them, uh, again, from a craft level. But it's really not my type of thing. Uh, I guess Alien is great for uh, the John Hurt scene and all the suspense. I really couldn't tell you a single thing that happens in Aliens, and I've seen it more than once. Uh, again, it's just... A Ridley Scott movie never looks bad. So even with Prometheus, uh, I know that has a share of plot issues. But... I like the future design. I like the surgery scene. That was pretty neat. So I think I will see Alien Covenant just to see what he's doing and uh, embrace the visual element of it. But, you know, this isn't really anything I could go on and on about the way the two of you are here. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, that's totally okay. Um, So you do prefer Alien over Aliens? I do. And I think Aliens is a fine movie. I just don't really remember much of it. I think I'm the only person I've ever talked to who prefers Aliens. So I may wow. have to just assume at some point it is my nostalgia talking. Yeah, and that's fine. Um, has anyone ever gone and revisited Alien 3? No, no. I, I was... Not even from a David Fincher, like I need to complete his filmography standpoint? I might do that at some point. Um, I was very unimpressed with it on first viewing. Props to them for trying to do a different sort of story, but I think it... Honestly, by existing lessened aliens and basically how aliens ended, because it, it, it came out 25 years ago. I'm not spoiling anything if I say that it killed off everybody pretty much from the previous film and just kind of ruined the ending of aliens. And there's just, it's not Fincher's fault. You know, he came in with almost no time for pre production, but just structure wise, it's a mess of a film. You know, it's. Uh, I, I see no real reason to revisit that or Alien Resurrection anytime soon. Yeah. Didn't Joss Whedon write Alien Resurrection? He did. That is bizarre to me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and one last question here, um, and you could just give a quick, quick answer. Uh, alien or Predator? Alien. I've never seen a single thing with Predator. Well, uh, let's. Uh, well, you can answer this however you want. Which one you think will win in a fight? Which one you think is cooler? <laughs> I guess Alien by default. All right. I hate to say this, but Predator. Um, I think Predator is absolutely badass. Um, All right. Will Mavity, take us home with the news of the week, and then we will get out of here. All right. So we have Kenneth Branagh is going to be starring in and directing an Anne Frank movie that is centered around Anne Frank's father. He will. That's a good call on his part, probably. Otto Frank. He will play Anne Frank's father. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. He, that's, that, I think that's good casting, actually. And he's the one who survived the Holocaust, so there's a story to go on after that, too. Yeah, uh, that'll that'll be interesting. 
Um, we also have Jake Gyllenhaal and Benedict Cumberbatch are in talks to lead Luca Gugadino's next film, which this man is on fire. He's got two films coming out this year. You know, he already had Call Me By Your Name and he's got the Suspiria remake coming out. So he's, he's doing kind of a Denis Villeneuve thing, just cranking them out year after year. Um, speaking of which... Uh, Tom York, or Tom York, I, I think Tom York, how do you pronounce it, from Radiohead, is following Johnny Greenwood into the world of film composing, and he is going to be scoring the Suspiria remake. Um, you also have Steve McQueen, uh, Academy Award winner Steve McQueen of Shame and 12 Years of Slave fame, is going to be helming a Tupac documentary. So we had the All Eyes on Us um, live-action Tupac film that's coming out later this year, but... I imagine anything Steve McQueen will do will be better. I mean, Tupac has a tragic life story. And, I, I mean, he deserves a good film. Um, I'll, I'll let the... I, honestly, I'll, I'll let the film do its speaking on Tupac. But I... His life... He really has a sad life when you hear about it. And also, I mean, some Changes is one of the best rap songs ever written. It's amazing. So, uh, continuing... Vanessa Redgrave is going to be joining Christoph Waltz's debut film. Michael, that sounds like a Schwartz film. Do you know much about it? I really just heard about it the other day. I have no idea what the plot is, though. All right, so um, that is worth looking into. James Newton Howard is going to be scoring Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. He's coming on a bit late to the project, but these days it's not that unheard of. Thomas Newman signed on to Passengers like a month before its release, or at least it was announced that he was working on it. Um, James Newton Howard's fantastic. He's been nominated for eight Oscars, never won, and Bigelow films have a history of having at least one really good track in them. That So I, I think this will probably do well. He's a fantastic composer. Could bring him Oscar nomination number nine. And finally, oh, actually two things. Uh, I don't know how I feel about this. We're getting a Hellboy reboot a month after Del Toro teased us about getting a Hellboy 3. Then he backed out and was like, actually, never mind. Uh, I can't do that. Instead, we're having um, Game of Thrones is Neil Marshall, who, if you watch Game of Thrones, he directed the Battle of Blackwater episode and the uh, Battle on the Wall. Watchers on the Wall. Yeah. Yeah. So very talented action director, you know, some of the Game of Thrones' best spectacle, and his horror film, The Descent, is really, really good. Um, I, David Harbour from Stranger Things, um, he's the sheriff, and otherwise he's that guy who just pops up in a lot of movies. You'll recognize his face, I guarantee you. We'll be pre- he was in uh, Sleepless earlier this year with Jamie Foxx. Yeah, and then... <laughs> Which it, nobody saw. <laughs> he was in... Uh, God, what, Black Black Mass. I mean, he, he's in a lot of stuff, but he hasn't had a lot of standout roles. Um, I don't know how I feel about this. It's going to be a gritty R-rated look at Hellboy. I, I can't imagine anyone other than Ron Perlman in that role. He was Hellboy to me, and Del Toro brought such a unique spin to the block. I mean, who else would have Barry Manilow in the background of a sci-fi action blockbuster? Uh, could be good. I'm mildly intrigued. Those series have done well with makeup nominations, so who knows? This could vaguely show up in the Oscar scene for its techs. And finally, um, do you guys know about the upcoming Charlie Kaufman scripted film? Have you got <gasps> Charlie? Charlie's got a film coming out. He is writing a screenplay 
with it's an interesting combination of people. Um, Charlie Kaufman is going to be writing his next film with Patrick Ness, who wrote A Monster Calls. Um, it's based on his book called Chaos Walking, and then is also co-writing a film with John Lee Hancock of The Blind Side and The Founder fame. So someone described it if... Um, I can't pronounce his name, but the the director who did Cemetery of Splendor, Adele Watchbach, I, I can't do his name. Oh, the, yeah, I know that they're guy. They're comparing yeah. if he teamed up with Ron Howard to direct a film, it would be about the same as these two coming together to work on a film. It's a very bizarre combination, made more bizarre by the fact that Charlie Kaufman decided he wanted to write a YA dystopia film. Um... It is by Patrick Ness. I can say, having read the source material, it's actually really unique in the genre, but it's an odd one for Charlie Kaufman to take on. It, it, the, the film will be called Chaos Walking. It's based on a book called The Knife of Never Letting Go. stars uh, Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. Um, legitimately a very good YA novel. It's got some great characters in a very unique universe. It is not what I expected Charlie Kaufman to be doing for his next film. And it'll be interesting. You mentioned uh, bizarre and odd and Charlie Kaufman in the same sentence. It sounds right to me. Yeah. So, and here's the thing. The book, as best I could describe it, is a dystopia, but I would more describe it as an interstellar Huck Finn. It's uh, two people journeying down a river with a talking dog for most of the time. Um, also, every thought you think comes out in a constant stream of consciousness. So the world is just populated by everyone's thoughts popping out like Charlie Kaufman, you know, just rambling streams of consciousness. So it kind of makes sense that it would attract him. Um, but it all. But then you have like the John Lee Hancock side who um, is tends to be more workmanlike, I guess. Well, think of it this way. Charlie Kaufman could sometimes be a little cold, maybe, with his characters, um, maybe get a little too adult and dramatic. Maybe John Lee Herencock is there to kind of, I don't know, add some humanity uh, more so to the proceedings. Uh, I didn't see a Monster Calls. I heard Patrick Ness did a good job. <gasps> uh, How dare you not seen that yet? I know. I heard How it's dare great. you? But, yeah, I heard it he is did a good amazing. job transferring it to the screen. So, all things considered, I, I think this one's promising. It's going to be shopped around for ca- at Cannes for additional funding, but they're starting production this summer. So it'll be interesting to see who else joins that cast. I honestly think it has the potential to be um, one of the best YA films ever made, but it needs to be handled right. Because obviously it could easily turn into a generic, like, divergent type thing. But there is a, there is a great story in there, and I think Charlie Kaufman might be able to pull it out. I can't think of a more depressing scenario than Charlie Kaufman, one of the great writers of our time, uh, who has a financial failure after financial failure and always talks about how hard it is to get projects made, does a commercial divergent-like film. And once again, even that is a financial failure and it's critically panned or whatever the case may be, I will be so depressed. Oh, uh, Doug Lyman's directing. I forgot to mention that. So, is it- oh, No, I feel so much better now. I, I, I think Doug Lyman is a very underrated director. Yeah, I mean, he his first Bourne film, and I guess this is also news. I forgot about this. Not Oscar news, but, you know, he's got another Edge of Tomorrow coming too, 
which is... Oh, yeah, no, we covered that last week, actually. Live, die, repeat, and repeat. That title is... I uh, know. It's the worst title I've ever heard ooh, in my life. Yeah. So that, that's it for news I have this week. All righty. Uh, before we get out of here, then, Michael, do you have anything else you uh, want to add on anything? That's it. It was just a very weird week with not a lot of film news aside from what we covered. Nope. Uh, you're right. A lot more real life news than anything. That's for sure. Uh, and Will, anything else? Or are you good? I feel like it'd be really funny if you uh, you tag this particular podcast episode as new Charlie Kaufman film without Mm-mm. the context. <laughs> uh, clickbait. Yeah, the worst clickbait imaginable. No, that's all I've got for you this week. <laughs> Uh, King Arthur's right. tracking even lower than we thought it would. It's looking at 14. 18 million, I no, think. No, it's 14 now. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. It's going to be a race between that and The Promise to see what has, uh, or to see what's the bigger bomb this year. Jesus. Oh, my God. That is terrible. All right, guys. Well, uh, Michael, where can they find you on the internet? As always, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Movie. And how about yourself, Will? You can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Player FM. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate your feedback. And we will see you all (gasps) next time. I was trying to say, like, how in space nobody can hear you scream. Like, (laughs) see you, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.